Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today we have a bonus episode looking at Lincoln's inaugural address. Abraham Lincoln presented his first inaugural address under unusual circumstances, to say the least. Many presidents come into office unpopular with a good portion of the nation, but no others ever came into office with a good portion in open revolt. We've discussed many of the challenges Lincoln faced in the weeks preceding ascending to that office, and they were considerable. Assembling his cabinet alone took much more effort than most presidencies ever require. Then, trying to balance on the tightrope line between public panic and public apathy proved a bit more than even Lincoln could handle. However, whatever challenges or failures lay in the past, he had finally made it to Washington. Under the circumstances, Lincoln's inaugural address would be of paramount importance in setting the correct tone for his new administration. He needed to accomplish now what Buchanan had failed to do, and tried to balance sectional and party divisions peacefully. Unlike Jefferson Davis, Lincoln had no specific need to speak to foreign powers, but he did face a similar challenge in attempting to communicate to different groups of Americans. First, he faced Southerners who had split off into a confederacy. He wanted to win their loyalty back. Second, he must include Southerners in the Upper South and keep them loyal. Third, he needed to reassure Northerners and energize them with confidence and unity. But again, he had to walk the tightrope line between capitulation and aggression. Doing either could cause a delicate situation to explode or collapse. Either way, spelled disaster. That being the case, he laid out a carefully phrased argument that just about everyone, north or south, would likely hear. Whether they would heed his message, only the future could say. As an aside, more of this speech had to be removed for time constraints. But this should still contain the most important passages for our purposes. In addition, however, with this trimmed speech, we are progressing the entire way through. No stops for commentary today. Fellow citizens of the United States, in compliance with a custom as old as the government itself, I appear before you to address you briefly and to take in your presence the oath prescribed by the Constitution of the United States to be taken by the President before he enters on the execution of this office. Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that, by the accession of a Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you. I now reiterate these sentiments, and in doing so, I only press upon the public attention the most conclusive evidence, of which the case is susceptible that the property, peace, and security of no section are to be in any wise endangered by the now incoming administration. I add, too, that all the protection which, consistently with the Constitution and the laws, can be given will be cheerfully given to all the states, when lawfully demanded, for whatever cause, as cheerfully to one section as to another. There is much controversy about the delivering up of fugitives from service or labor. 
The clause I now read is as plainly written in the Constitution as any other of its provisions. No person held a service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from the such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. It is scarcely questioned that this provision was intended by those who made it for the reclaiming of what we call fugitive slaves, and the intention of the lawgiver is the law. All members of Congress swear their support to the whole Constitution, to this provision as much as any other. In any law upon this subject, ought not all the safeguards of liberty known in civilized and humane jurisprudence to be introduced, so that a free man be not in any case surrendered as a slave? And might it not be as well at the same time to provide by law for the enforcement of that clause in the Constitution which guarantees that the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states? It is seventy-two years since the first inauguration of a president under our national constitution. During that period, fifteen different and greatly distinguished citizens have in secession administered the executive branch of the government. They have conducted it through many perils, and generally with great success. Yet with all this scope of precedent, I now enter upon the same task, for the brief constitutional term of four years, under great and peculiar difficulty. A disruption of the Federal Union, heretofore only menaced, is now formidably attempted. I hold that in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution of the Union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination continue to execute all the express provisions of our national constitution, and the Union will endure forever, it being impossible to destroy it except by some action not provided for in the instrument itself. Again, if the United States be not a government proper, but an association of states in the nature of contract merely, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it? One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to lawfully rescind it? Descending from these general principles, we find the proposition that in legal contemplation the Union is perpetual, confirmed by the history of the Union itself. The Union is much older than the Constitution. It was formed, in fact, by the Articles of Association in 1774. It was matured and continued by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was further matured, and the faith of all the then thirteen states expressly plighted and engaged that it should be perpetual, are the Articles of Confederation in 1778. And finally, in 1787, one of the declared objects for ordaining and establishing the Constitution was to form a more perfect union. But if destruction of the union by one or by a part only of the states be lawfully possible, the union is less perfect than before the Constitution having lost the vital element of perpetuity. It follows from these views that no state, upon its own mere motion, can lawfully get out of the Union, that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States 
are insurrectionary or revolutionary, according to the circumstances. And I therefore consider that in view of the Constitution and the laws, the Union is unbroken. And to the extent of my ability, I shall take care, as the Constitution expressly enjoins upon me, that the laws of the Union be faithfully executed in all the states. Doing this I deem to be only a simple duty on my part, and I shall perform it so far as practical unless my rightful masters, the American people, shall withhold the requisite means or in some authoritative manner direct the contrary. In doing this there needs be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless it be forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government, and to collect the duties and imposts. But beyond what may be necessary for these objects, there will be no invasion, no using of force against or among the people anywhere. Where hostility to the United States in any interior locality shall be so great and universal as to prevent competent resident citizens from holding the federal offices, there will be no attempt to force obnoxious strangers among the people for that object. Before entering upon so grave a matter as the destruction of our national fabric, with all its benefits, its memories, and its hopes, would it not be wise to ascertain precisely why we do it? Will you hazard so desperate a step while there is any possibility that any portion of the ills you fly from have no real existence? Will you, while the certain ills you fly to are greater than all the real ones you fly from, will you risk the commission of so fearful a mistake? All profess to be content in the Union if all constitutional rights can be maintained. Is it true, then, that any right plainly written in the Constitution has been denied? I think not. Think, if you can, of a single instance in which a plainly written provision of the Constitution has ever been denied. Is there such a perfect identity of interests among the states to compose a new Union as to produce harmony only and prevent renewed secession? Plainly, the idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, and always changing easily with the deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy, or to despotism. One section of our country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended, while the other believes it is wrong and ought not to be extended. This is the only substantial dispute. The Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution and the law for the suppression of the foreign slave trade are each as well enforced, perhaps, and as a law can be in a community where the moral sense of the people imperfectly supports the law itself. The great body of the people abide by the dry legal obligation in both cases, and if you break over in each. This, I think, cannot be perfectly cured, and it would be worse in both cases after the separation of the sections than before. Physically speaking, we cannot separate. We cannot remove our respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. A husband and wife may be divorced, and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other, but the different parts of our country cannot do this. They cannot but remain face to face, and intercourse, either amicable or hostile, must continue between them. Is it possible, then, to make that intercourse more advantageous or more satisfactory after separation than before? 
Can aliens make treaties easier than friends can make laws? Can treaties be more faithfully enforced between aliens than laws can among friends? Suppose you go to war. You cannot fight always. And when, after much loss on both sides and no gain on either, you cease fighting, the identical old questions, as to terms of intercourse, are again upon you. This country, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of their existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it, or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. I cannot be ignorant of the fact that many worthy and patriotic citizens are desirous of having the national constitution amended. While I make no recommendation of amendments, I fully recognize the rightful authority of the people over the whole subject to be exercised in either of the modes prescribed in the instrument itself. The chief magistrate derives all his authority from the people, and they have referred none upon him to fix terms for the separation of the states. The people themselves can do this also if they choose, but the executive as such has nothing to do with it. His duty is to administer the present government as it came to his hands, and to transmit it unimpaired by him to his successor. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there any better or equal hope in the world? In our present differences is either party without faith of being in the right. If the almighty ruler of nations, with his eternal justice and truth, be on your side of the north, or on yours of the south, that truce and justice will surely prevail by the judgment of this great tribunal of the American people. My fellow countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon this whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you in hot haste to a step which you would never take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time. But no good object can be frustrated by it. Such of you as are now dissatisfied still have the old constitution unimpaired, and, on the sensitive point, the laws of your own framing under it. While the new administration will have no immediate power, if it would, to change either. If it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in the dispute, there is still no good reason for precipitate action. Intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him, who has never yet forsaken this favored land, are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulty. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is this momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as they surely will be, by the better angels of our nature. So, where is this message going, what does Lincoln say, and why? First we should look at the introduction to the address, which for once possesses real significance. 
Most introductions are just designed as that, to introduce the speech, nothing more. Lincoln's contains a hidden message. When he talks about a custom as old as the government itself, he is implicitly drawing upon the legitimacy of the established government, at that point stable for an entire human lifetime. He does not specifically contrast it with the newborn confederacy, but the message was there. He continues, however, with something quite unusual, though probably justified by circumstance, an address of the key issue of slavery. Not many inaugural addresses need to talk about very specific legal, political, and cultural issues, but Lincoln needed to do so, and he did. Here he went a bit farther than many Republicans would wish, but he did effectively repeat the message as regards slavery. Lincoln declared, promised again, that he would not interfere with it in the states. Additionally, though, he pledged to respect the Fugitive Slave Act as long as the free states were allowed some amount of self-protection. He went so far as to frame that protection in terms of states' rights. Given that his intended audience included many Southern Democrats, this argument theoretically could work. The problem lay in two facts. First, the nature of slaveholding was intensely personal. Each slaveholder presumed a relationship between him and herself that superseded laws or customs or even the Constitution as such. Attempts to control slavery through law tended to backfire, sometimes even if the laws in question aimed to strengthen slaveholding overall. Second, however, an issue lay in the ambiguous nature of Southern separatism. Although hypothetically grounded in states' rights, secessionism would repeatedly come into conflict with that ideology. Many of the pro-slavery political maneuvers outright violated states' rights doctrine. But the proponents never stopped to consider this when they could instead advance slavery. Lincoln continues by making an argument on the perpetuity of government. It works insofar as it goes, although some of his historic evidence appears a bit questionable in hindsight. He likely hit the conclusion, if not entirely the argument, however. States, or even whole regions, at times grumble over some perceived slight, then and also today. There is occasionally talk of seceding from the United States, but it's not as simple as that. The government, as formed under the Articles of Confederation, was itself meant to be permanent as governments go. The methods of dissolving it under the law existed. States' rights, though, really was the law of the land, more or less, and the states eventually exercised those rights to form the new government under the Constitution as written in 1787 and ratified in 1789. Here, too, Lincoln correctly notes that the seceding states did have a legitimate and approachable method of leaving the United States, either through a convention of states or a direct constitutional amendment. Although Lincoln does not entirely describe it, he touches on a concern felt by many in this moment. Allowing the seceding states to simply present this as a fait accompli could functionally destroy the legitimacy of the federal government entirely. Men already questioned if the entire United States might not break apart into several regional confederacies. At that moment, it seemed like a dangerous reality. And later on, when talking about the concordance of interest among the Confederacy, or lack thereof, Lincoln notes that even within their own ranks, they faced dissension and even new secession. What would they do then? Certainly one cannot easily imagine Jefferson Davis tolerating his very own stance if, say, 
South Carolina or Texas decided to split off once again. In addition, there lay the question of all the new states created since 1789. These were created by the Constitution, children of it, so to speak. Yet, like South Carolina or Georgia, they claimed the right of violating it and separating from the other states on a whim. Indeed, there is even a stranger element, for by nature the Constitution guarantees citizenship in the several states. Although not entirely without precedent, it looked mighty odd for men and women to travel between states as citizens and then suddenly break that citizenship. And who exactly would become the citizens of the new Confederacy? At the very moment, many localities in the Confederacy were trying to force out anyone suspected of anti-slavery sympathies, or in some cases simply for being northern-born. It looked like vital questions of citizenship were being written or rewritten to please the slaveholder, and it seemed that way because it was. But Lincoln goes on by pointing out the incredible danger the Confederacy has created. Jefferson Davis in his address talked peace but implicitly threatened war if the Confederacy were endangered. But Lincoln here points out in grim acknowledgement that strife and conflict could become inevitable and unavoidable regardless of peaceful intentions. The Confederacy had just erected an invisible paper barrier where none ever existed. It cut clean through rivers such as the Mississippi and thoughtlessly divided firms and families and farms alike without any difference in language, law, or religion, and each of those may involve their own troubles in shaping borders, the Confederacy wrote a wall into existence. How could this possibly work in practice? The Midwestern states, for instance, utterly loathed the Confederacy from the first day, because the latter threatened to cut off the Mississippi River to them. And a thousand other similar questions existed in all corners. The Confederacy completely failed to consider any of these problems, partly because that would have involved difficulties, negotiation, and the possibility of not getting their way. But Lincoln once again explained that the Confederate states still had standing inside the United States if they cared to involve themselves in lawmaking. Far from weak or broken, they had power to greatly influence the political process. He further explains that again, the Confederate states have a rightful remedy if they cared to ask for it. Lincoln closes, of course, with a call to peace, and for sober second thoughts. His great fear, the greatest fear, was that the very friction he described would lead to war quickly. And, of course, in less than two months, that really occurred. These lines thereby appear awful and awfully prophetic, in retrospect. Secessionism was accompanied by manic energy and wild enthusiasm, but it was not accompanied by serious planning or careful analysis of wise counsel. Furthermore, if the seceding states were legitimately and fully bent on separation, they might well be able to do so after making that stance clear to other states. A political process permitting this might well have been negotiable in 1860. The trouble there lay in the problem that the Confederacy did not want to talk. They wanted, perhaps, to fight and win some easy victories. Believing that the Union in 1860 was rotten to the core because the North did not embrace slavery, the Confederates and pro-slavery men in the South rushed headlong into their own destruction. They did, however, have some reason to fear, while Lincoln had reasons to hope. Within a few weeks following Lincoln's inaugural address, 
prominent Confederates began to worry that the entire project would collapse from within. Lincoln steadfastly refused to provide a convenient provocation. His outreach, aimed to maintain the status quo and play for time while giving no clear offense, seemed likely to win a bloodless victory. For certain overly proud Southerners, this was unacceptable. If Lincoln would not attack, they could manage on their own. As the man himself said, you can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. The Confederates found those terms acceptable. And yet, in the end, Lincoln's message partly failed. He hoped to keep all the Upper South loyal and, in essence, wear down the patience of the Lower. That did not happen because too many in the Upper South were really loyal to slavery. Virginia would therefore become the key ideological battleground. Unfortunately, Abraham Lincoln had the great misfortune of fighting a battle where the foe had already prepared the ground. Agents of the Confederacy were actively spreading a secessionist message in the state and planning open treason. Meanwhile, the events that would start the war were already steaming towards the first fatal explosion at a small, almost forgotten fortification called Sumter. This will, not surprisingly, be the last American Civil War podcast for the year. I am going to take a week off, but when we come back, we're going to have a good, long episode detailing the winding road that led to the bombardment at Fort Sumter. Although it did not make war entirely inevitable, it became the key event in luring Virginia away from loyalty to the old flag. Excited and energized, the surrender of Fort Sumter would spur Virginia's secessionists into taking the state out of the Union. Thank you for joining us on the American Civil War Podcast, and I hope you'll come back next time.